Good morning. How are you? <laughs> it's good to see your faces. <laughs> it's good to see you, good to hear you sing, good to be a part of this. Thank you guys for coming out. Um, just want to say for those who are tuning in, thank you for tuning in if you're not able to be here. Um, we're, we're glad you're with us right now. And uh, if you're here or watching through live stream, you're kind of visiting with us per se, I want to say thank you. My name is Kyle, lead pastor here, and uh, just grateful to be here under the sunshine and in cars and, and doing this. So, uh, but we're going we're gonna to preach. And so I've got a, a, a message here from Acts 21. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, if you've got your phone, your device, whatever. Uh, turn there with me. And uh, as Alan mentioned a moment ago, feel free to crank a car if you're getting warm or um, whatever you need to do to be comfortable. Uh, but we're glad, again, glad you made it. So, I believe that Christianity calls believers to a position of offense. Not offense necessarily, maybe sometimes, but offense. Meaning, we ought to spend our lives proclaiming to all that belief in the life, the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ leads to eternal life. And this is the only way to eternal life. After all, as new creations, we are born again in Christ Jesus as believers. There, this is now our God-given responsibility that we be doing this. This is going to be interesting with the wind. <laughs> so... In 2 Corinthians 5, we see that upon belief in Jesus, we become new creations. We're given the responsibility of being an ambassador for the message of reconciliation. So that's what I have in mind today as I talk about we are ambassadors for Christ. But there's something about the message of reconciliation that really rubs people the wrong way. I think it has something to do with the idea that we need reconciliation with God at all. That if God is truly good, if He is truly righteous, if He is, if he is just, and sometimes we don't know what that word really means. Alright, this is great. <laughs> How can we get to heaven unless we be right with him, but why would he demand that we be right at all if he is truly good? And this is the hurdle that we've got to learn to get over as Christians. This is the one that's hard for people to get over with, um, well, just with, with this idea that we're good, that we're inherently good or inherently right, with God. So out of pride, humans really struggle to to understand that we need to be made right with God. We we un, we struggle with this difficulty that there's anything in us at all that would make us not right with God. We like to think that we are inherently good, though scripture clearly teaches that we are inherently evil. And so we need reconciliation with God. We need for people to understand that this shortcoming demands death, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. 
but that's hard, and when you bring that up, you've really crossed the line with people. Nevertheless, it's true. And though the implication of being at, intim- at enmity with God is both spiritual and physical death, there is good news, and not good news like getting your dream job or a wedding announcement or a birth announcement or making a new friend type good news. It's good news that transcends all other good news. From the beginning, God planned to save his people from bondage to sin and death through his son. And so he sent Jesus, his son, to live and proclaim freedom to the captives. But freedom for the captives would come at a great cost to his own life. Jesus would go on to take the sins of God's people, past, present, future, on himself on the cross. He would bear God's wrath in full on the cross, and on the third day of being in the tomb, God raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenlies with a name that is higher than any other name. Jesus became sin for us. That's good news. So that we might become righteous through him. By faith in Jesus, you are born again to a new life as a new creation in Christ for the glory of God. In a very real sense, we are reborn in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit for the work of proclaiming His name in all the world through our works and our words. It's important to note that a life lived for the sake of Jesus will bring opposition. It'll come from unbelievers and it'll come from believers. Often this opposition will come through false accusations or false representations of what we believe. In Acts 21 through 26, these next five chapters of Acts, we see Paul, an apostle who has mostly lived his life on offense for Christ, have to go on the defense. He gives five speeches across those chapters that are essentially defending himself for the life that he's lived. We see the speeches, we see what happens between them, and today in the speech that we'll look at, our takeaway is this. Christians must be ready to defend their faith, especially against false accusations. So when we finished surveying Acts 21, 1 through 16 last week, we left Paul, who was driven by the Spirit to get to Jerusalem. He's there with his companions who were equally driven, yet not by the Spirit, to keep him there with them, to to keep his life. And he just convinces them that, guys, this is what the Lord has called me to. I am ready to give my life, if necessary, for the Lord. And so convinced, at least, that the Lord's will would be done, they say, go ahead. And so when we pick up here in Acts 21, 17, uh, verse 17, Paul is arriving in Jerusalem, and he's there with the brothers, and we read this in verses 17 through 20. It says, "And G- oh, sorry, wrong, wrong text. Here we go. All right, 21, 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, who was the brother of Jesus, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles 
through his ministry. And when they heard it, it says they glorified God. And so, real quick, what he's doing is he's just kind of summarizing what's happened in his ministry. The Lord has used him mightily among the Gentiles. And they're excited about that. They glorify the Lord for this. And then they bring up this issue that's going on. Look at, look at the rest of verse 20 there. It says, when they heard it, they glorified God. And then they said to him, they said, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. And so they're nervous about this. There's thousands of Jews. There's essentially this mob which is going to hear that you're here, and they're going to be upset because they've been telling, they've been hearing from others that you've been telling people not to obey the law of Moses, not to be circumcised, not to circumcise their children essentially saying that the Old Testament laws and customs are void now. This is what they're accusing him of. And Paul never did anything of the sort. A quick remembrance of Paul's journeys thus far will tell us such. We have record through Luke's writings that Paul never did such things. In fact, Paul carried the decision handed down from the Jerusalem Council about how the, about how the Gentiles should live among the Jewish brethren, to these new brothers and sisters in these churches. Paul willingly participated in a Nazarite vow during his second missionary journey. Paul went in haste to Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost, to be with the Jews in the celebration. Paul had Timothy circumcised to avoid divisions with the Jews. Paul most certainly had not gone against Jewish customs. He had upheld them where it was good and right to do so. So, first thing, let's see. <laughs> so let's keep reading in verse 23 through 26. They said, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from, that was, uh, from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving no uh, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So verses 23 through 26 are just telling us that Paul, um, telling us that these Christians in Jerusalem knew these things were not true. So they're saying, here, join with us in this plan to, to kind of clear your name of these things that, that are being said. They knew the kind of man Paul was. They're willing to stand with him. However, rather than simply just saying, hey, let's go to them and deny the accusations, they chose the way of humility and love by developing a plan for Paul to appeal to, his Jewish, to these Jewish people and to Jewish laws by purifying himself. 
and participating in the last part of this Nazarite vow with these other four men, he's humbling himself, saying, this isn't necessary, but I'll do it because this may appease the people. He even covered their payments. Why? Well, they said so right there. It says, so that all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. And as for the Gentiles, they're thinking, we'll remind the Jews of the letter that we've sent, of what was decided at the Jerusalem council. By agreeing to do this, Paul's showing humility. He's willing to lay down his pride. He's willing to lay down his right to defend himself by going the extra mile to show his dedication to his Jewish heritage for the sake of unity. And my question is, what might you need to lay down? What might you learn from his example? What might you not stand so boldly in for the sake of unity? What are some things that might appeal to your opponents that you could humble yourself and do that you may gain their ear? Let us remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9 where, again, he's defending himself and he says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I came as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You see, humbly serving others is one of the best ways to spread the gospel and defend your faith during accusations. But in this case, it wasn't enough. Sometimes the mobs won't be satisfied by an act of humility, no matter how great it might be. Let's look at Acts, uh, the rest here, Acts Thank goodness for Bible ribbons to help out in a time of wind. <laughs> Let's look at Acts 21. We're going to read 27 through 36. It says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, most likely those there in Ephesus, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So they drug him out of the temple, began to beat him. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Uh, this is a fulfillment of Agabus' prophecy 
earlier in chapter 21. He inquired who uh, he inquired who he was and what he had done. In other words, why are you guys doing this? Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Wow. So Jews from Asia, there in Ephesus, where Paul had had earlier troubles, come to Jerusalem, and they see Paul, and they accuse him of two things. One, teaching people against the Jews, teaching them against the law, against the temple. The second thing was bringing Greeks into the temple. This was a big no-no. You could not take a Greek beyond the dividing wall of Greeks and Jews. And if you did, it was punishable by death. But the word supposed in verse 29 reveals to us that it's a lie. They're just assuming things. Assuming, supposing, it bases itself on perception rather than reality. Therefore, it's dangerous for both the assumer and the assumee, the one being assumed upon. Wielding these accusations, the jurors the Jews stir up the crowds against Paul. They drag him out of the temple, begin beating him. The tribune there, who's an elected military official, hears the commotion. He grabs some soldiers, and he goes to see what's happening. As he inquires about what's going on, he's getting two different stories, or a bunch of different stories. He can't figure it out, so he says, well, let's just arrest him, and we'll bring him in, and we'll question him. The crowd cries, away with him, which is the same as saying, crucify him. They want him dead. You'll see that in our next chapter. It's very reminiscent of what happened to Jesus at Jerusalem. Again, Paul is wrongfully accused. He's beaten. And in the middle of it, he displays humility. The crowd's unwillingness to accept Gentile believers because they weren't like them reveals a trap for you and I. A trap in thinking that our way to follow Jesus is the only way to follow Jesus. There are absolutely core doctrines that we must uphold to for faith to be genuine. I agree. But there is freedom on secondary issues. The Jews have mixed up core doctrines and secondary issues. They believe that proper temple worship and the observance of Old Testament laws or customs are essential to one's salvations. Uh, one's salvation, sorry. It's like teaching that you should not watch any movies rated higher than PG if you are a Christian, or that secular music is sinful, or that drinking alcohol is sinful when the Bible says clearly that it's being drunk that is sinful, or interracial marriage is sinful. There are only two kinds of marriage forbidden in the Scriptures. One, a believer to an unbeliever. That is what it means to be truly unequally yoked. Two, if you or the other is an adulterer, you are not to be married, neither are they. We can talk about that later. The point of today is rally around core doctrines. Understand truth. Work hard in those things to love those around you, not to demand rightness all the time. If you want a list of core doctrines that we hold to, you can find those on our website under the Our Beliefs section. If you want to learn how to love others, 
or what it means to love those around you, see 1 Corinthians 13. The next thing that happens is Paul gets to make a verbal defense for his life, and we can quickly break that down into a few parts. First, he expresses his appreciation for his Jewish, Jewish heritage. Look at 2137. He says there, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So there was a troublemaker around, and the tribune thought, Maybe this is that guy. And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when, the, and, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, but brought up in the city of Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering uh, to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man, according to the wall, well-spoken, of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know, this, to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, 
I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So the first thing Paul does here is he just expresses an appreciation for his Jewish heritage. He's saying, I was a zealous Jew. I'm grateful for the upbringing, the heritage that I have. The second thing he does is he reminds him of his former zeal there in verses 4 and 5. He says, I persecuted Christianity to the death. Like, literally, oversaw the slaughter of Christians because they undermined Jewish authorities. The high priest, the whole council of elders can attest to this because I received my marching orders from them. And I journeyed to Damascus to bind and bring Christians to Jerusalem for punishment, just as you are doing to me now. Paul is saying, I was just like you. I was zealous in the way that you're zealous. But what changed? Well, Paul tells them about his encounter with Jesus next. In Paul's conversion, we see that all persecution of Christians, and we should take heart here, believers, that all persecution of Christians is direct persecution against Christ himself. In heaven, Jesus still feels the weight of all that his people endure. He is sympathetic to us. The events of our lives move him deep within his heart. Oh, what a Savior. He has not only rescued us from sin and death by his death, but he lives to make intercession for us. That means that he is daily affecting in our lives what he accomplished once and for all on the cross and through his resurrection. That is, he is affecting our justification, our sanctification. We're being made more like Jesus. And one day, our glorification will be made sight as we're with him forever. This encounter with Jesus changed Paul's life. So much so, he just he then tells them, here's what he called me to do after he changed my life. He said, a man named Ananias, you guys may know him, he's a devout Jew. He's highly respected by all the Jews in the region. He didn't take offense to this. He followed Christ also. We know from this account, in the account in Acts 9 of Paul's conversion, that Paul was called to be a witness for Jesus. Paul was the last apostle chosen. We know from this account, in the account uh, in Acts 9, that he was chosen to go everywhere and preach to everyone, and he would suffer much for the name of Christ. But his specific ministry was to the Gentiles. So Paul, believing, knowing that Jesus was the Messiah, spoken throughout the Old Testament, he showed that he believed that Jesus washed away his sins by identifying himself with the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection in the tomb by being baptized through believer's baptism. Finally, Paul reveals why he went to the Gentiles. He says, Jesus sent Paul. He says, Jesus sent me to the Gentiles. I saw him as I was here in the temple praying. He sent me to the Gentiles to proclaim the good news of freedom from sin, salvation in Jesus, no longer bound, secured by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for all who believe in him. This includes the Gentiles who once, as Paul writes to them in Ephesians, were far off, cut off from the people of God, divided by this wall of hostility. But in Christ they have been brought near. There is now neither Jew nor Greek. 
There is one body, the church. And as the saying goes, old habits die hard. Some of the Jews couldn't accept this wonderful news about the fullness of the work of Christ and what it meant for others. So they're outraged. We'll see more about their interaction next week. But what does this mean for us? I think we too must adopt a Pauline approach to gospel-driven offense and defensive efforts. Here's how you do that. You count all things as loss in exchange for knowing Jesus Christ. Consider Philippians 3 with me for a moment. Let me read this passage. Philippians 3. 3 through 11. It's, Paul writes there, he says this, For we are the circumcision. He's saying, I'm a Jew who worship by the Spirit of God, but it's by the Spirit we worship, not by our Jewish customs. And glory in Christ Jesus, we put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, he says, Though myself, I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he's saying, Here's what he goes on to say. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. But whatever gain I had, whatever I had gained in all my flesh, whatever I thought I had earned, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or trash or dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had accomplished so many things in his life prior to Christ. He counted those things as loss when he came to know Jesus. And he counted them as further loss when he came to seek Jesus further. When Christ becomes your everything, everything else becomes as nothing. Do not sell out for your reputation or for worldly accomplishments or wealth or for pleasure. Turn to Jesus. Find eternal pleasure in Him alone. Then everything else, like achievements, or hardships, or pleasures, or persecutions, become an opportunity to make much of the name of Jesus Christ. Even death becomes an opportunity to the one who knows Jesus. My friends, make haste and turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into His wonderful face. For when you do, the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. 
Say to him now, Jesus, to you I lift my eyes. Jesus, you are my glory and my prize. I adore you, behold you, my Savior ever true. Oh, Jesus, I turn my eyes to you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for truth. I thank you for this gathering today, both online and in person. Heavenly Father, would you, through your spirit, reveal Christ? Father, I pray that unbelievers would see Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to salvation. God, I pray that they would make haste in turning from sin and turning to Jesus. Would you save them? Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters here who know you and love you, I pray, Father, that you would help them to find this world growing more and more dim, that all its pleasures are but foretaste of what's to come in heaven. Help us, Lord, to not be so attached to the things of this world that we're bound in our service to you. But help us to be bound once and for all to Jesus Christ, forsaking the flesh, living by the Spirit day after day. God, help us to glorify you in everything that we say and do. We love you. We thank you for your word today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want to say thank you for coming out today. Um, you may allow the parking attendants to help you leave so it doesn't get too chaotic. Jasper and Evan are helping with that. Y'all give them a, a horn honk, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and um, just thanks again for coming. If you have any questions, feel free to, like if you're here, stop by and ask. I'd love to talk. Uh, but if you're online, feel free to email me at kylej at newlifecommunity.co. I would love to visit with you also. You guys be blessed. Have a great day. Amen.